Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. It is a big weekend for movies. I'm Jeff Brunt. It's Oscars weekend. We'll take a look at what's in store for Hollywood's biggest night and review two of the Best Picture nominees. I'll also follow up with a further review of the show that I mentioned last week. All of us are dead. And I've fallen down a little bit of a basketball well. You could say I'm feeling the madness. But first, it is Oscar weekend. Sunday, March 27th. It's the star-studded movie event of the year. And the Oscar goes to... With the biggest show opening in Oscars history. It's incredible. Plus, the first live performance of We Don't Talk About Bruno. A tribute to 60 years of James Bond. And a Godfather celebration 50 years in the making. Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes host... The Oscars, live Sunday, March 27th on ABC. And the Oscars are shaping up to be more interesting than expected. As it turns out, there is an actual race for Best Picture. The 10 nominees again are Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. And Netflix's The Power of the Dog has been the frontrunner for a few months already, but Apple's Coda has a lot of momentum right now. Coda won the Producers Guild of America's big award last weekend, and more often than not, that film goes on to win Best Picture at the Oscars, but not always, and not even almost always. They've been off the mark seven times since uh, the year 2000, most recently two years ago when 1917 won the PGA Award and then Parasite won the Oscar. However, a couple of weeks ago, Coda also won the SAG Awards main award, so it's sort of established a track record winning these big awards. And uh, the two movies, uh, Coda and Power of the Dog, couldn't be more different. I'll have more to say about Coda in a bit as I just watched it last night. It's a crowd pleaser, a tearjerker, and uh, you know, The Power of the Dog is a film that's more admired than beloved for its craftsmanship and its performances. I won't be shocked on Oscar night to see Jane Campion win Best Director for Power of the Dog and then see Coda win Best Picture. The other fight between these two movies comes in the Best Supporting Actor category. Uh, the Power of the Dog's Cody Smith-McPhee pitted against Coda's Troy Kotsur. Everyone thought Smith-McPhee would be winning all the awards this season, but Kotsur has been winning most of them and stands to become the first deaf actor to win in that category on Sunday night. Best Supporting Actress is expected to go to West Side Stories' Adrian uh, DeBose, which will be a bit of a fun bit of history as Rita Moreno won the Oscars 60 years ago for the same role in the original West Side Story. And you can look for Will Smith to win Best Actor for the movie King Richard, where he plays Richard Williams, the father of tennis superstars Venus and Serena. And Best Actress appears to be a toss-up. The different award shows have had uh, a lot of different actresses nominated in that category with a bunch of different winners. So there's no clear-cut favorite. The nominees there are Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for the movie Spencer. If I had to guess, I would just go with Jessica Chastain because she did win the SAG Award for that. So that's sort of the shape of things in the big categories. It'll be interesting to see what kind of a show they actually put on this year. Last year was the weird pandemic restrictions year, and it was just terrible. The slate of movies was underwhelming, and the ceremony itself was beyond dull. It was maybe the most boring three hours we've had in a 
two years of a lot of boring hours for us. This will be a much more normal show back at the Dolby Theater with an audience of 2,500 people in attendance and a proper show with hosts and musical performances and everything. Uh, the hosts, as we heard in the promo there, are Amy Schur, Wanda Sykes, and Regina King. Uh, apparently, they each get to host an hour. That kind of seems weird, but sure, why not? And it's not the only big change. They're handing out several awards before the ceremony and then showing clips of that during the show to try to save some time. And that has not gone over well with anyone, it seems. It's just looked at as a desperate attempt to try to get more viewers. But A, that's not going to get any more viewers. And B, it's only upsetting the viewers they still had, the people like me who enjoy watching the Oscars and don't really care if they go a bit over three hours long. They also did a Twitter poll for a fan favorite award. I tried to vote on that, but Canadians were not allowed. So that kind of sucks for us. Uh, and that's not all. They've also announced a lot of the presenters that will be there that don't seem like they have any business being at the Oscars, like uh, Tony Hawk, for example. I guess he is in the Jackass movie, so he is in a movie. Uh, again, that doesn't really bother me, but I also don't think a skateboarder in his 50s will be bringing in younger audiences to watch the Oscar. Snowboarder Sean White is another presenter, so I don't know. Even if it seems weird, at least it'll be interesting because... This is something you've never seen before. Rachel Zegler will also present an award. She's the star of West Side Story. And last week, she was complaining on Instagram that she didn't even get invited to the ceremony, despite being the star of a Best Picture nominee. And it didn't take too long for the Academy to change their tune in the face of that backlash. So she will indeed be there to present an award. Plus the stuff we heard in the promo, the musical performances, the tributes to James Bond on its 60th anniversary and The Godfather on its 50th anniversary. That's what it'll look like on a Sunday night when we get to see the 94th Academy Awards. Will you be watching at all this year, Brett? Uh, I guess I... have not I, seen any of the movies, right? You are correct. I haven't even seen Dune. I, I had the copy of the Blu-ray in my hand that Warner Brothers sent us, but I knew how much you loved that movie, so I got it to you post-haste and did not watch it. And um, on Crave. I know. I, I was looking at it the other day. I was going through movies thinking, what should I watch? What should I watch? And I turned on Crave, and right there, the first thing that came up was Dune, and I just wasn't feeling it, so... Yeah, this is this will easily be the first. This is the first year where I've seen nothing, like not anything. Maybe one random visual effects movie or something. I don't even know what's been nominated there. So yeah, yeah. So there you go. Well, I've watched most of them. Nine of the ten best picture nominees. I'm going to talk about a couple of them now, and what turned out to be one of the big Oscar nominees this year, the film called Coda. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? Coda has three Oscar nominations, and it is still considered a major contender for at least two of them, and one of them, like I said, is Best Picture. So what is in many ways the smallest film of the bunch may well walk away with the night's biggest prize. And again, like I said, it's probably going to win Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer. The other nomination is for Best Adapted Screenplay for the writer-director of the film, Sean Hader. He adapted this English version of the movie from a French film. So what's it about? Well, it's a coming-of-age story about a teenage girl and a small Massachusetts fishing town. She has a brother, a mother, and a father, and all of them are deaf, and she's the only one in the family who can hear. Her mom is played by Marley Matlin, the only really big name in the film, and former Oscar winner. She won uh, in the 80s Best Actress Award for uh, Children of a Lesser God. Amelia Jones from the Netflix show Lock and Key plays the teenager Ruby, the main character. And as a teenager about to graduate, Ruby has to navigate her school life, you know, with boys and the future of her education and the mean girls and her home life, regular family stuff, but mostly 
the family business, which is uh, commercial fishing. They own a small boat, and the dad and brother go out in that every day, and she usually goes with them. And uh, how she fits into the scheme of things, because as the only person in the family who can hear, they do lean on her a lot to help communicate with uh, all the other fishermen and the people that fishermen have to deal with in, in the daily uh, grind of that job. So she uh, has a lot on her plate for a 17-year-old girl. It is a drama. It's not a really heavy drama, though. There's a lot of levity, and it's sweet and tender at times. Troy Kotzer really earns his nomination as a dad, and frankly, I'm surprised Jones didn't get an acting nomination out of this as well. I should point out the movie obviously has a lot of sign language with subtitles throughout it. The emotion is well-earned. It sneaks up on you. The movie sets things up so nicely and then, you know, just sets up the dominoes in the first half and knocks them down in the second half. And I ended up crying a bunch of times in the second half. Happy tears, as uh, all of them do. There's nothing tragic or really very sad in all this. It's just a beautiful little movie. So, I mean, its detractors are going to say it's too light for an Oscar movie, but I think it'd be very hard to watch this movie and not root for its success. Like I said earlier, The Power of the Dog is the, the movie that people admire, and Coda is the movie that people really, really enjoy. The only downside is that it's only on Apple TV+. Plus. And I'm sure a lot of people have that, but a lot more people don't have that. It's not the juggernaut that Netflix is yet. And it's, uh, you know, more than a little irritating that you can't just see this in a theater or even just rent it. So thank God for free trials. Four couch cushions out of five for Coda, available to stream now on Apple TV+. Plus. So if you've got a free trial for Apple TV+, Plus, are you going to watch that uh -huh. Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound? Uh, I honestly have had... I've will. I don't have time. <laughs> I'm trying to explain how I don't have time. I've done three months worth of stuff in the last four days, and I'm just burnt out beyond belief. I think that's why I cried through that movie yesterday too. It was just like I'm crying at everything these days. So <laughs> just catharsis. Okay. Yeah, I just uh, I just won't have time for it. I wanted to watch uh, Ted Lasso too, but it's like, well, I'm not starting it and not be able to finish it. So forget it. Well, in a moment, Jeff's going to tell you about another one of the best picture hopefuls. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And it is Oscar weekend. We're talking about a couple of the best picture nominees. In our last segment, I gave the movie Coda four couch cushions out of five. It's available on Apple TV+. And it's a crowd pleaser. I would be uh, hard-pressed to think of anyone I'd know that wouldn't like that movie. So if you're looking for something, it's also got a pretty good chance of winning Best Picture at the Oscars. Coda on Apple TV+. Plus, You can't go wrong with that. Another one of the Best Picture hopefuls is a movie from Japan called Drive My Car. It's in Japanese, so I didn't grab a clip. It's also up for a foreign film and will almost, almost certainly win in that category as it is also, like I said, a Best Picture nominee. The story here is really simple, but the movie is also pretty complex. Uh, a Tokyo actor named Yusuke Kafuku gets a gig as a director of a play in Hiroshima. He drives out there and discovers once he there that the theater company insists on hiring someone to drive him around. The reason is simply that the last director they had got in a bad accident and now it's just policy not to let the talent drive. So a young lady, Watari, is hired as his driver. It's an hour-long commute each way every day and again, Kafuku thought he would be driving himself and he wanted that hour-long commute because he listens to a tape of the play that he's going to be putting on in his car as he drives. It was his old tape from years prior when he was an actor in that play, and his wife reads the other parts, leaving his part blank so he could practice his lines. And I should say that there is a beginning section of the movie where we see his life with his wife, and then at the 40-minute mark, 
the credits start. There's a time jump, and his life is vastly different. It's a bold move, but by the end of the movie, you, you really get why they did it like that. So there are a lot of scenes in the car, and the driver and passenger get to know each other over the weeks, and we get to know them as well, of course. When he's not in the car, Kafuku is rehearsing the play with the cast. The play is Anton Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, and all throughout the movie, on the tape in the car, in the rehearsals, during the production, the dialogue being spoken from the Chekhov play echoes the real lives of the characters saying it or listening to it. It's an ingenious device. It's very powerful, especially as it goes on and we get to know everybody more and know what their stories are and their motivations are. It might sound like it's high-minded or artsy-fartsy, but it does not come across as pretentious in the execution. Nothing in this movie does. It's a wonderful film, but I get that it has a few things working against it in trying to find any traction with mainstream audiences in North America. A lot of people simply won't watch a foreign film or a film with subtitles, so there's that. Plus, it's three hours long, and it's a fairly quiet movie. I won't say it's slow, but there aren't any you know, they're in a car all this time, but there's no chase scenes or explosions or there's not even a whole lot of people raising their voices. It's a cumulative movie. It builds both from a standpoint of giving us all the information and uh, emotionally it builds as well. If you have the three hours and some semblance of an attention span, it is a very rewarding film to watch. <laughs> I'm glad it is assured at least one Oscar. It would uh, sort of be thrilled to see it pick up a screenwriting Oscar as well. But uh, Drive My Car, available to rent. I highly recommend it. Four couch cushions out of five. And now I've seen... Nine of the ten Best Picture nominees, Brett. I just have to watch Nightmare Alley on Disney Plus this weekend before Sunday night. All right. And hey, speaking of Disney Plus, I, I got to admit, as we shift gears here from the Oscars to superhero stuff, I am super excited for Wednesday to see the debut of the next TV series in the Marvel Cinematic Universe on Disney Plus because I really like this character. And I just, quite frankly, never thought he'd be adapted for live action. Moon Knight! Steven. There he is. Hello, man in the mirror. I know you're scared. A bit, yeah. I know you're confused. You weren't supposed to see any of this. What are you? Sure you want to know? Mark, you look different. I can't tell the difference between my waking life and dreams. Am I like some sort of secret agent? It's a little more complicated than that. We protect the vulnerable and deliver justice. This is the best, worst day of my life. Studios Moon Knight, only on Disney+. Plus. Oscar Isaac plays the Moon Knight, but he also plays Stephen Grant, a quiet and meek gift shop employee who starts having blackouts. Turns out he's got dissociative identity disorder. Another person living inside him is Mark Spector, a mercenary who also becomes Moon Knight, a.k.a. The Fist of Khonshu, the Egyptian god of the moon. Ethan Hawke plays some sort of a cult leader who has a rather nifty and scary ability to open doorways to other worlds and let the monsters in. I think it looks really cool. Moon Knight's suit appears to be alive in the sense that one minute he's just in his normal streetwear and then his suit will just appear out of thin air and start to wrap around him almost like a mummy. And it adorns him with this cool mask with glowing white eyes and a white crescent moon-shaped cape. 
And I wondered if the costume could be pulled off because in the comics he is bright white and it makes for some striking imagery on the pages of a comic book. But I always thought maybe it would look stupid in real life. But in the show, I guess it's more of an off-white. I don't know. I just think it looks really cool. I will admit I am not an expert on Moon Knight. I've read several of his comics and I've never actually been able to answer the question, does he actually have powers? Like, has he really been chosen to be the fist of Khonshu or is he just mentally unwell because the mental wellness component became a really big part of his storyline over the years. I just haven't read enough of his comics to know, but I know that in the show, his costume is alive and can do cool stuff, so he clearly has powers in this. Either way, I think it looks wild. I hope it delivers in a big way. Uh, Jeff, are you going to watch The Moon Knight? Oh, I'm excited for that. Uh, They sent me some advanced copies of that, too. I can watch like the first four of them this weekend, and I'm Pretty sure I will. I, I, you know what? I saw that email and I thought I better not because I'll end up watching four this weekend and then I'll have to wait another month. Wait a month. (laughs) So I think I'm better. I'm better to just do it once, like one at a time. Uh, If they if they sent the whole thing, fine. Like we've got access. I don't know if you realize this, but we can watch the second half of Ozark now, courtesy of our Netflix preview. But I'm just gonna wait. I want to wait until I can at least talk about it with people. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Next up, we're going to tell you what is new in theaters this weekend. We want to talk basketball. And Jeff's got a new show on Prime he wants to tell you about. That's all coming up right away. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I want to talk about how I've been almost all but consumed over the last week with basketball. But before that, got to tell you what's new in theaters this weekend. Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, Brad Pitt, and Daniel Radcliffe, good cast, star in The Lost City. Miss Sage, I enjoyed your book about The Lost City, and I believe you're the one who could help me find its treasure. What is this? Taken? Am I taken? Oh! Bullock plays an author named Loretta Sage. She writes romance adventure novels set in exotic places. Channing Tatum plays Alan, her cover model, and he tries to embody the hero of her series named Dash. Radcliffe is the billionaire who kidnaps her to help him find the lost city. So Alan decides to go after her and tries to be a real hero, uh, but he's just a stumbling fool. Then along comes Brad Pitt for some reason to help them out. It looks fun getting decent reviews, so... The Lost City, new in theaters this weekend. But now I want to talk about basketball because I have been reminded how much I love basketball. Like last year in 2021, Jeff, your one of your favorite 10 TV anything was the Grey Cup, right? Last year, oh, absolutely. Uh, Blue Bombers over Hamilton. Sorry, Ticats fans. That was awesome. <laughs> So I I suspect that 2022 for me, one of my top 10 for TV is just going to be basketball. And it all started three weeks ago when HBO Max in the States and Crave in Canada debuted Winning Time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty. Dr. Buzz, we're out of time. You don't hire someone. We're going to open training camp without a coach. Who is Jack McKinney? He's a visionary. All sorts of big ideas. It's okay. I take a glass of orange juice with my morning paper. Have it at my door at six. From now on, we keep our opponents chasing us. Sounds like chaos. It is. A cheer squad is a good idea. For 1963. Our girls, they won't cheer. They'll dance. We'll have a nightclub more exclusive than the Playboy Club. So what do you think? It's showtime. 
So we're three episodes in now to this show. It airs on Sunday nights on Crave. And you don't have to be a fan of basketball to enjoy this. This is just good TV. John C. Riley plays Jerry Buss, the new owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, circa 1979, just as Irvin Magic Johnson joins the team as a rookie, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And this is the beginning of the Showtime era Los Angeles Lakers, which happened to feature another one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And we're just getting a behind-the-scenes look at all of these colorful personalities involved in this team. And it's just, it's so good. It's dramatic. It's funny. I love the retro feel, how it sometimes gets really grainy, like they're using where you're watching an old movie. The music is tremendous. But what it's really done here is it's brought me back to my love of basketball for a little while because Magic Johnson was my favorite player when I was a kid and a teenager and the Los Angeles Lakers were my favorite team for no other reason than when I was eight years old, I learned that there was a basketball player named Magic and I thought that was really cool and I liked the fact that they had purple in their uniforms and purple has always been my favorite color. That's it. Sometimes it's just a dumb reason why you latch yourself onto a team. But when I was a teenager, I was a basketball fiend. If there was a game on TV... I watched, I was watching it, didn't matter who was playing like in the NBA. If there was, if the NBA was on TV, I was watching it. And on Saturdays, I would watch college basketball as well. So I started as a fan of the NBA, then got into college basketball as well. And I suspect that's why they've decided to release this show at this time of year, because it just happens to coincide with March Madness. Gives it up, Brooks, the jumper, no good. You can feel the madness. St. Peter's pulls off the upset. March Madness, the NCAA college basketball tournament. They have a men's tournament and a women's tournament. 68 teams in, one team out. Every game is do or die. And I have not paid attention to this event for a few years now, I guess. Not because I didn't care. I just would forget or didn't have time or what have you, but I made it a concerted effort to check it out. And it's, it's funny. It's the only time of year that millions of people, quite frankly, around the world who don't know anything about college basketball suddenly have a a tournament bracket in front of them. And they're wondering about the Virginia tech Hokies. Like I couldn't name a single player in this tournament. I recognize many of the colleges because I used to know almost all of them. Um, Like in that clip, that was a 15th seed St. Peter's defeating number two seed Kentucky, which is one of the biggest basketball programs. But I'm not here to talk about the sportsing component of March Madness. I'm here to talk about the fact that it's just compelling television. Like why do we watch any of the shows we watch? It's because we are interested in the story. And that's why sports fans like sports, because ultimately it's the story that you're being told during the game or during the season or throughout the playoff series. And in this tournament, like I said, every game is do or die. So you wonder, is the top seed going to beat the 16th seed, like just going to wail on them? Or will a lower seed like number 15th ranked St. Peter's? become a Cinderella story. They advanced through the first and second round, so they made it into the Sweet 16. So it's just, it creates all sorts of avenues for these wild stories to be told. So even though 
I don't didn't even know St. Peter's existed as a school, but I'll be rooting for them in the Sweet 16. So it's been fun to revisit March Madness. I watched, I think, like 10 hours of basketball on Saturday and another eight on Sunday. And then because I looked up, because I dared look up one one basketball video on YouTube, <laughs> now my algorithm, it just keeps spitting out recommending basketball videos. And one of them turned out to be like an hour-plus-long documentary from 2012 from NBA TV. It shows up on a channel called Shin Star Live. I don't know. But it's about the Dream Team. It was one of those times none of us will ever forget. The characters, just right. I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. The timing, just right. 11 Hall of Famers. I don't think you can ever do that again at no point in time. If only it could all be the way you might have dreamed it up yourself. Are you filming? Yep. That was the most exhilarating 15 seconds of my life. People perceived us as being superheroes. Please, Michael Jordan! No Isaiah Thomas No Isaiah Thomas question. Cool. We became a team, and that team just stomped on everybody. This never happened in sports. Nowhere. Well, I figured eventually there'd be a movie made about the Dream Team. This group may well be the greatest team ever assembled in the history of team sports. So again, the Dream Team was an amazing story because it was the first time that the NBA sent or whether it's the first time they were allowed to use pro players uh, from the United States in the Olympic teams, because other countries are using pros, but the Americans always used college players. So they sent a team of NBA Hall of Famers, uh, some of the some of the biggest names in sports, never mind basketball, when you think that Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird were on this team together. And uh, to watch... The way that, A, they dominated their competition, just crushed them, but B, to see the worldwide attention that they got, and C, they essentially made basketball a global sport just in those 1992 Olympics. But as you watch this documentary, it was interesting to see some of the other little subplots, like how if Michael Jordan went for a walk, he would be mobbed by thousands of people, but fellow uh, player John Stockton from the Utah Jazz who just looked like your average dad on uh, who on vacation with his family he was able to walk right down the street with a video camera in his hand talk to people who were wearing dream team merchandise and they didn't even recognize him so just all kinds of neat stories lots of interviews I'd never seen before lots of footage I'd never seen before and it was just super fascinating so it's been a fun week you know I mean I nothing could reignite my total basketball lunacy from when I was a teenager because it consumed my entire life outside of school. I just don't have time for it, but it's been nice to go back down memory lane. Like JB, I know you're, you you enjoy watching sports, but you're kind of like me. You're not a huge sportsing guy, but uh, the dream team, I mean, that was a huge part of our lives. Yeah, there was a, I think it was a 30 for 30 documentary on it just a couple of years ago that was very interesting. But yeah, that was a, I remember when that happened, that was a huge deal. And people, every, every third guy in walking down this hallway in school seemed to have a 
Dream Team t-shirt on there for a couple of months. <laughs> That's during the Olympics, that sort of thing. So yeah, that was a huge deal. Um, yeah, it's. I wish. I wish. I, I, I'm often envious of the the sports nut guys because they can always find something to watch on TV. Like they don't do the flipping around for two hours trying to decide what to watch like you and I do. They're just like, oh, there's a game on. I'll just watch that. I was like, boy, that the that kind of you know relaxation is something I wish I could attain. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, um, I think that after having watched a few games of March Madness, I think I might try to at least make that uh, a major event for me every year rather than just sort of casually turn it on here and there because I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, lots of great stories to be told. And in a moment, we want to tell you another story behind a show called The Tourist. And I need to just offer you some quick follow-up thoughts on that South Korean zombie show, All of Us Are Dead, which is amazing. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I just got to quickly mention this because my friend Kent, he listens to our podcast, but he's like a year behind. So maybe in about February or March of 2023, he's going to hear that. One of the reasons why I've enjoyed watching basketball is because Kent and I love the NCAA tournament and we like to get together and watch it. He brings a clipboard and everything. He's got his bracket on a clipboard. I'm like, man, you love basketball. So, Kent, uh, it's been fun. That's been a part of the reason why sports are great, too, because it brings people together. And uh, I miss people after two years of being a recluse. So, there you go. Anyway, Jeff, tell us about this new show on Prime. Yeah, it's called The Tourist. Oh, this fella here doesn't remember me. You don't remember your name. You've got, like, amnesia. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. I heard there was a man brought in in an accident. Where'd he go? Where the hell is this stranger? I keep wondering if anyone's right there missing me. <laughs> Help me! <laughs> the Tourist debuted on Prime Video a couple of weeks ago. It stars Jamie Dornan as the title character. He's an Irishman in the Australian outback. And we meet him as he's driving along. He seems to be minding his own business when all of a sudden he's terrorized by what appears to be a rogue truck driver who tries to ram him off the road. It's like that Steven Spielberg movie, Duel, uh, one of his first. He ends up crashing, and then when he wakes up, he's in the hospital with no memory. He has full-blown amnesia, can't remember his name, where he's from. No one points it out, but obviously he's from Ireland, and he can't remember why he's in Australia. Absolutely nothing. He At one point, he has a beer, and he says, oh, that's lovely. I hope I didn't used to be an alcoholic. Uh, he has no phone or wallet or anything, nothing to identify him, but it doesn't take long before a lot of bad, crazy stuff starts happening as he tries to unravel the mystery of who he is. Along the way, we meet a small-town cop who's trying to help out, a big-city cop who just wants to wrap everything up, a waitress who may know more than she lets on, and some bad guys. The main bad guy is recognizable to us, Brett. It's Iceland's finest actor, Olafur Dari Olafsson. He's the star of the show Trap that we both liked. He also showed up in the, the Will Ferrell Eurovision movie. He's actually been in quite a bit of Hollywood fare, according to his IMDb. Season 3 of Trapped is done, by the way. It's already aired in Iceland. Netflix here sitting on it for some reason which I guess is okay because I still need to watch season two. But uh, there is a season three of Trapped coming, if you've been waiting for that. Anyways, Olofsson plays an American in this. He's a psychopath who pretends he's a cowboy, and his accent is interesting. He doesn't sound natural, but I would say that it's not so much that Olofsson can't do an American accent. I think it's just a choice he's making to come across creepier 
and it does work. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out at the end of this thing that he's the brother of Javier Bardem's character from No Country for Old Men. Um, there's also a shadowy organization of some sort involved in all this, and a lot of small-town Australians that we meet along the way as well. The lady cop who's trying to help is the pure good of this show. She's She's new to the job. She's not a real detective yet, but she's trying to prove her worth. She has this jackass of a boyfriend who she needs to leave yesterday. And if nothing else, the show will be worth watching for that guy to get his eventual comeuppance. He actually does feel like a Coen Brothers character. So I think maybe the creators of this show must really be into the Coen Brothers. It's a mystery show. And, uh, you know, Dornan's trying to retrace, retrace his steps and find clues to that will point out to who he is and what he's been up to. It's kind of like Memento, but in straightforward time. It's six episodes, each about an hour long. I've watched three of them so far. It does feel a little slow in spots, but it's never too long before there's an interesting reveal or a decent bout of action. And the Australia of it all is interesting. We don't see a ton of stuff set in the outback, so that's kind of refreshing. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it. I will say it's definitely worth a shot. Check out The Tourist on Prime Video. And I'll just quickly mention here, All of Us Are Dead. I sort of brought it up last week. It's a show on Netflix that's debuted in recent weeks. It's a South Korean show about a zombie outbreak. And in that sense, it's nothing new. But it's set in a high school, so that's new because we get to see everything through the world of these high schoolers who are trying to deal with uh, the this developing apocalypse in front of them. But they're also still dealing with all their high school crap. And... The zombies, we've seen these kind of zombies before. They're the rage-style zombies who run really fast and are super strong and that we saw either in Dawn of the Dead or the 28 Days Later movies. What I really liked about this show is that they added an element to what happens if you are infected but you are immune and that added all kinds of interesting possibilities for where could the story go I saw some people complaining it's a little too long. 12 episodes for a Netflix show is weird. Like, this is not a weekend binge. Uh, I don't, well, at least I don't think it is. If you can do it, great. Uh, I salute you. Uh, But it's just kind of heavy and it is a little slow at times, but it has some wonderful character development. It's really touching by the way, by the end, you really feel like you know these characters. So when something's tragic, it really hits hard. But I, I recommend another fabulous show from South Korea. All of us are dead on Netflix. Uh, Just a heads up, super violent and super gross. If you're not into that, don't bother. And that's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch or if it's too gross for you, don't bother. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.